Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is Christian Ballou of Autonomous Research, Senior Analyst. Christian, great to catch up. Just run me through your first take, please. Yeah, it, it's a good morning, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, look, it's a, it's a pretty strong set of results. Um, at this point, we're really accustomed to Goldman uh, generally doing quite well relative to expectations. And um, they did it again, um, you know, really strong numbers in equities, investment banking, and, um, and also on the efficiency front. So, so I think all in, um, all in uh, a really strong set of uh, results this morning. When it comes to Goldman Sachs, people talk about strategy. Yes, they did beat on trading overall. That was driven by equities. They had a miss in debt trading. What are you looking for in terms of how they're guiding their strategy going forward as they try to shift from just investment banking centric place to something that includes more lending? Yeah, so I think you have to understand the strategy in, in the broader context. They've been growing the, the banking business, if you like, the, the traditional banking business for quite a while. It's almost a decade now. Um, and you've seen really strong growth in, in, in the net interest income and in, in, the, in, the in the loan book. But, but I think as we go forward, that will play an increasingly important part in, in the story um, in terms of building out um, you know, far more predictable revenue sources. So. Uh, lending will be one, but the asset management business, the private wealth uh, business, the alternative asset management business, and even in the traditional, um, you know, core uh, investment banking, M&A, um, <clears throat> and DCM type businesses, I, I think these are the businesses they have to grow. They are focused on growing and will ultimately drive the value mm. of the company going forward. Christian, in your research note, you always do a great job of you compare it. You even put a slash mark in it, the GSMS Combine. I'm fascinated by what you think. We see Frazier at Citigroup trying to do a Gorman and increase wealth management. We've got others as well. What is the pixie dust that James Gorman has in wealth management that everybody else, in asset management, that everybody else wants to copy? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. Look, I think James Goldman has done an absolutely unbelievable job at Morgan Stanley. Um, you know, you know this one, Tom, because you've been here for a long time. And, you know, Morgan Stanley was more or less the basket case um, a decade ago. Uh, and they've turned out really to be, I think, um, almost a poster child of how you do a a, 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 a corporate restructuring. Um, look, I think they've really done a good job in, in um, focusing the wealth management business around efficiency over the last decade and lending, which has boosted pre-tax margins, almost doubled pre-tax margins um, since they acquired um, Smith Barney from City. I think going forward, the key for that business will be growth. Mm-hmm. Um, growth has been somewhat slower, as you see the migration of, of advisors away from the warehouses to the likes of a Schwab and the regional brokers like a Raymond James. I think going forward for Morgan Stanley, a key part of their growth has to be pivoting that wealth right. business to growth. Um, and I think the Eaton acquisition and ultimately Eaton Vance um, uh, will, be, will be very helpful in achieving right. that. If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television Worldwide, Christian Ballou with this autonomous research after years with Bernstein and Credit Suisse as we look at the state of global Wall Street. Christian, we've seen enough come in. I love your broker-centric view, but we've seen enough coming in from these banks. How do they prosper five years out? Everybody can't win at the same thing. So what is the sense of prosperity you see for major bank American Wall Street? 
Yeah, look, look, look. It's a, it's a good question. Ultimately, um, look, I think the the health of banks will will depend on the health of economies o- o- over time. So, so I do think like economic prospects are a, a really big driver of, of 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 bank outlook. But also, the reality is today is there's a lot of innovation out there, and you know some of the f- smaller fintechs have a lot of capital, and the market is willing to give them even more capital to go innovate. So. I think your ability to invest in technology, your ability to be nimble around how you um, right. service customer, focus on customer service, that's going to be very, very important going forward. You know, but ultimately, you know, the banking business is really about, you know, economic prospects and, 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 and sort of like uh, responsible lending. So those two will probably yeah. play a bigger part, part, of, and part John, of the time. This whole digital thing underscored by the 8,000 shares of a firm you got on your sabbatical. I mean, John, to me, the great <laughs> January issue of 2021 is the slash fintech uh, digital banking thing and what, how all these companies adapt to it. Yeah, I'm doing so well, Tom. I considered not coming back. And that's why I've had the last four weeks off just to enjoy myself on those mega gains in fintech. Mega gains. Christian, build on that for us. Seriously, Bitcoin. the conversation going forward and how much some of these names have got to spend. Yeah, look, look, look it was, the dollars you spend is one thing. How you spend it is another, right? Clearly, if it was just about dollars... Uh, the biggest and best, uh, or the biggest banks would, would, would stream away. So how you spend it, what you spend it on, um, you know, your technology stack, all these things matter. Uh, but, but look, make no mistake about it, um, you know, banks are, um, have a lot of competition on their hand with, with some of these very nimble and forward-thinking fintechs. And it's no surprise that um, you hear a lot of the banks focus a lot on sort of the tech spending you need to put in place to, to be able to compete. Christian, we're getting bank earnings on a changing of the guard kind of day. We're going to get the last day uh, of President Trump's presidency. And we have Janet Yellen uh, testifying to the Senate Banking Committee, the Finance Committee, to talk about her nomination as Treasury Secretary. She has in the past expressed some desire to regulate banks. This will be something that will fall under her purview. What are you looking for to hear from her today in terms of how she will approach the banking sector in her tenure if she is confirmed? Yeah, no, look, it's a good question. Uh, look, I think the broader picture around um, the regulatory and political ca- climate around banks, I think, is, is, is important context. I think coming into this crisis, for the most part, part banks have been part of the solution, quite frankly, and, and not the problem. Um, you saw from the latest capital um, uh, sort of SICA results that you know, banks were able to get back to returning capital, and it, it speaks to really the strength of um of, of, of the capital basis. And quite frankly, I think regulators should pat themselves on the back. They did, a, they did a very good job post the financial crisis to show up banks' capital, improve their, um, their risk management. And I think it showed very well in the COVID crisis how resilient these banks are. And I think that's the broader context in terms of how, um, uh, not just Yellen, but I think how generally um, the political climate will, will deal with banks. They've been more of the solution than, than part of the problem. Um, and, 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 you know, for the most part, you do need a strong bank to, to sustain recoveries. Christian, thank you. Always great to catch up, sir. Come back soon. Christian Bolu there of Autonomous Research. I don't think a one-off check changes that. 
I think you need something else. A one-off check won't do it for Brent Schutte. He's with Northwestern Mutual, and of course, they're looking at actuarial assumptions. They're looking at long-term investment as he provides investment guidance as their chief investment strategist. Brent, what is your line right now on investing for five years? I don't care about the here and now. I care about a more long-term Northwestern view. Is it a single-digit return, or can we do better? Yeah, I think it's a single-digit return, but you mentioned something real important because I think people get caught up in nominal uh, returns. It's only real returns that matter. And so within that real return being in the single digits is assumed to be in a lower inflation rate. Now, if inflation is higher, certainly um, there is a, re a revisiting of those estimates that you have. Uh, but in, in general, I, I think people should just focus on real returns. Uh, and if returns are in the single digits, it is likely that uh, inflation will be low. And so all in all, uh, consumers and, and citizens will still be fine. Brent, do you know what I find amazing looking at markets right now and just going through a long list of research notes that reflect on valuations and say you can only really develop an argument on valuations by looking at where valuations are relative to interest rates. And returns, therefore, are going to be great for the next several years because rates are going to stay so low. My difficulty with that, Brent, is that we've all seen the last 10 years in Europe, in Japan, where rates have been ultra low for a, a very long time and markets just have not returned big gains over the last several years in Europe. Low rates don't always get it done, Brent. Why is the United States any different? I just think because of the monetary policy that we've had and the promising to do more and the fact that our long-term growth rate is above those places that you mentioned because of demographics, because of productivity. And so there is a, a little bit better of a, an outlook here in the U.S. based upon that. And I think one of the, the commentaries that you guys kind of missed in the beginning is that productivity is actually rising in the U.S. Uh, and so perhaps our long-term growth rate is inching up uh, if you think about productivity finally coming back after being dormant for some time with uh, the technology boom that we've had uh, in the U.S. And so I, I would focus more on that. And I, I think you're 100% correct. I mean, the, the risk to me uh, is still, and this probably um, combines into your earlier talk about there being no fiscal hawks. I mean, to me right now, the central banks around the globe, especially in the U.S., are going to do more un until one of three things happens. Uh, either the dollar falls too much, inflation rises too high, or perhaps people start demanding a real return on their fixed income because the stock market is built on the bond market. Uh, and so until those three things occur, uh, and actually two of the three are considered positive right now, uh, until they occur, then I think we continually have um, the uh, market moving higher uh, because right now the cost for policymakers on the other side is zero. There's nothing for them to contemplate. Um, they're actually trying to get a couple of those things to happen. And so until that changes, until this debt comes due, I think the market moves higher. All right. So, Brent, uh, implicit in John's question, and it's an important one, is this idea that perhaps there is a fundamental inconsistency between rates remaining so low and growth being sufficient to justify equity valuations where they are. At what point does one of them have to give? Do we have to either get higher rates on the heels of more inflation or stock valuations have to go down because people have been priced in just too much growth? I think it's probably a combination of both, right? So if people lose hope in the future, then certainly I think, or our growth rate dramatically slows, uh, then I think the, the first part that you mentioned uh, is certainly true. Uh, and so um, the other side, which I still think is the bigger risk, is that rates do rise uh, and you actually have the stock market having to reprice because now bonds are more attractive right. because I do view valuation. And this is where I think people miss the boat. Valuation to me is a relative tool, not an absolute tool. 
money has to go somewhere. When our advisors right. sit down with clients, they decide stocks or bonds, not one, not, not, not neither of each. This is so, so important, folks. Brent it's, Brent, it's right where I wanted to go, which is the idea of absolute and relative. The NASDAQ 100, 12 months trailing, TMT is up 40%. The Russell 2000, out of nowhere, is up 24% as well. I mean, two polarities, if you will, in terms of factor analysis and such. Do you sell those to get an absolute return on the other stuff, or do you do it on a relative basis and use new cash to go someplace else? Well, for the past six to nine months, I've been coming on this show and others and talking about moving into cyclical assets, moving into small caps, things that are more leveraged to global growth or even just broadening U.S. growth. And so if I take you back to 2018, a lot of these charts went completely off the rails. Um, so tech started outperforming everything else. Growth did better than value. Small cap dramatically underperformed large cap. And if you think back then, we were first introduced to the trade war, which was designed to knock out levers of growth around the globe. And it had a pullback in the U.S. also. It, it knocked our cyclical side out. The U.S. pushed higher because we do have that big tech sector, especially in large cap stocks. And now you are starting to see the economy broaden back out even before COVID hopefully releases its grip. You're seeing manufacturing do well. We think that continues into 2021. And that broader inclusive growth means that the stock market will be broader and more inclusive. And so it is branching out into things like value. Um, it is branching out into things like small caps, uh, even emerging markets. And we think that continues into 2021. Brent, can I ask you a philosophical question just to wrap things up? We've heard so many times on programs like this, people lining up to say they think we're in a bubble. By definition, can we be in a bubble if the majority of people that come on programs like this think valuations are close to bubble territory? Look, I, I think there are, there are parts of the market that are expensive that are built upon dreams that may not come to fruition. I think there's a whole lot of parts of the market that will do well in the coming environment. And if I take you back to 1999, yes, there were parts of the market then that were expensive and people talked about a lost decade, but the decade was really only lost in those expensive parts of the market. Things that hadn't done so well into 1999, like small caps, like value stocks, actually did well uh, up until 2007 when the world fell apart at the seams. Uh, but they actually had a good run during the 2000s. And I suspect this time will be very similar. Things other than the things that have done well because of the narrowness of the market will actually perform into the future. And I guess that's the good news about diversification is that you will have parts of your portfolio uh, that will pull along the rest of the parts that may underperform. And I think they've kind of switched from what they were to what they will be. Brent Shitty of Northwestern. Brent, great to catch up, sir. Thank you. This is without question my China conversation of the day. Leland Miller is different besides being exceptionally competent on Asia. And on China, for years, he's taken a different tack of looking at China data. No one I know digs deeper on China than Mr. Miller. He joins us right now. Leland, your note is very strong. You speak of deceptive data out of China. What is deceptive? Well, I think if you focus only on headline gross numbers. You're going to get a very cheery story coming out of China right now because their recovery is better than any other major economy in the world. But the, the true question for markets should not be whether China can nail a certain GDP number in a particular quarter or year. It should be how healthy is the growth? What is the composition of the growth? Is it sustainable going forward? And when you look at the consumption economy, it's by far the weakest part of this recovery. And you see it in the retail data, you see it in the services data, and it, it's the real question mark looking forward, both in our data and in government data. 
You and I have talked for years about this, about deceptive data in China. Do you look at the vector of which way they're moving, or is it so messed up now, even the vector, the trend is deceptive? Well, you know, it, it's funny because during this recovery from a COVID virtual standstill last, uh, you know, last winter, we have seen very much the same thing as official data. We just haven't seen as intense a recovery. So we saw the beginning of the recovery. It was manufacturer driven, and then it was property driven. Basically, basically the industrial economy, the supply elements of the economy driving, driving China back to growth, but lagging behind consumption. Households are much more uh, tame in their behavior. Uh, retail services, again, those those parts of the economy have not bounced back as much. So we're, it's not that we're seeing a different picture. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we're totally diametric to to uh, to, to what uh, to what the government's reporting. Right now, we're seeing a similar picture. We're just not seeing the intensity of the recovery that that Beijing is claiming. So Leland, can you put this in the context of the U.S. GDP? Because a lot of people have said that the faster than expected growth in China puts it on track to exceed the U.S. economy much sooner. Do you think that that's been overstated based on what you're seeing on the ground? Yeah, I know people care about this, but but the question I think is is not what we should be focusing on. Uh, if China wants to beat the U.S. in GDP, it could simply by building an endless bridge from, from Beijing to California. The bridge would fall in the water, but by, along the way, you get enough uh, aggregate growth, not productive growth, but aggregate growth to, to, to ramp up GDP levels in the stratosphere. Uh, when you're looking at this, much more important would be PD, GDP per capita. I think the U.S. GDP per capita is six times or so uh, greater than China. Uh, household income, household wealth is more important. These are the things that make a a country great and and it's it's i think a complete distraction to be looking just at the gdp number which could be manufactured the short term but lead to serious long-term problems if, if you do that perhaps leland at the same time you see an increasing amount of foreign investment into china people saying that the government will support the economy that will support asset prices going forward and will continue to do so as they try to give the appearance at least of uh, faster than expected growth are you making an argument against those investments or perhaps against some of the enthusiasm that we're seeing somewhat unbridled from across the world. Not really, because look, if you're if you're investing in China right now, you're doing it probably for two major reasons. The first is diversification purposes. You want to put more money into a growing economy. The second thing is you look around the world and, and a lot of things look really bad right now. Uh, China's had the top COVID uh, recovery. And so there's a lot of reason to put uh, to put more money into China with all the opportunities there. I think where people fall short in their analysis is they look at China and they say, wow, there's this growth story. You've got 1.3 billion consumers. They must be buying a lot of things. There's going to be this linear growth pattern. Uh, let's, let's just go in blind. And, and, and you know, you can see right now in the consumption data, there's a lot of problems with what's happening in China right now. It just happens to look a lot better than a lot of other places. Leland, the other issue that we've seen this year has been the divergence in exports and imports. And we've seen a real increase in exports from China to the U.S. and around the world. Do you expect the stronger U.N. to really hamper that? I mean, how much do you expect that to become a headwind for the nation? I think Beijing's in a bit of a pickle. Uh, they've allowed the, the renminbi to appreciate this year because they don't have much of a choice with the trade surplus hitting record highs recently, but they don't want to see a skyrocketing yuan. What they want to do is they want to keep it relatively stable with a slight uh, appreciation towards strength uh, against the U.S. dollar. 
so I think what they'd like is just this beautiful stability. But because China is a more attractive destination right now, because of the COVID recovery uh, being so being so well done, uh, you, you know, you've got these you've got these real pressures. So they're not in a danger area right now. But I, I guarantee you, it's causing a lot of sleepless nights thinking where this could go if the U.S. keeps going in the other direction, and they're forced to keep making this currency go up uh, or face the political problems with not doing that. Beautiful stability. That's what we all want. Leland, great to catch up. Leland Miller there of the China Beige Book. Grace Lee is at the Packard Hospital of Stanford University, their school of medicine, I should say, and the Stanford Children's Hospital after a tour of duty at the acclaimed Boston Children's Hospital and out of Pennsylvania Medicine. And we're thrilled that she could join us right now. Dr. Lee, those of us of a certain age have the giving of a vaccine as being a doctor's office with a cold thing in the corner, or maybe not, or maybe it was drops of polio. How do you envision the vaccination of those younger in the coming months? Well, we're really looking forward to having the ability to um, have information around the safety and efficacy of at least our our teenagers, you know, 12 and older. Um, Currently, we're able to vaccinate those who are uh, 16 and older uh, when those phases become available to us to be able to vaccinate uh, at a local level. Um, But imagine that we're going to need to continue to push for vaccine clinical trials in the younger age group. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be really important for us to be able to, uh, you know, uh, protect all of our uh, all of our kids and adults and our, our older adult population as effectively as possible. Do you assume that we will be using these new modern vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, or do we await something more conventional, something more traditional? I mean, much like the development to date, um, my perspective is that we need to have a diverse portfolio to ensure that we have candidates that are potentially viable to be able to protect the younger um, population. So, you know, having testing the mRNA vaccines and those are anticipated to go into hopefully uh, trials down to age six months. Um, But I also anticipate the other vaccine candidates uh, we hope will continue to uh, be in development for that population. We're going we're gonna to need as many uh, vaccine candidates as possible in order to get anything in a timely way. Dr. Lee, can we get to herd immunity without children being vaccinated? Well, so children are known to um, be able to be infected and also potentially you know, asymptomatically uh, be infected. So I think that is continuing to be a challenge. Um, in general, although children are less likely to have hospitalization or severe disease, you know, we do see severe disease happen, number one. But number two, I think it is going to be important. While we can also um, uh, employ all of our other mitigation strategies, specifically for the younger population, elementary school, we're still going to need options uh, in order to be able to get back to a new normal. Um, we are going to be wearing masks and doing social distancing and cohorting for a long time until we have those tools available. There's also a question uh, going forward about enrolling enough kids in some of these studies in order to get the data necessary to roll out the vaccine. Are you concerned about the safety, considering the fact that younger individuals don't get as sick from the virus and perhaps are a little more reticent as a result to go in and get jabbed by a new vaccine? 
Safety is always going to be the number one priority, um, especially in the younger age group. Um, agree that the benefit-risk balance will be um, different for younger kids than it is for older. But, you know, we not only get uh, uh, vaccinated to protect ourselves, but also to protect our family members and loved ones. Um, I do think that the trials will emphasize for sure uh, the safety profile of these vaccines in younger children. I anticipate that... Um, It'll be more challenging to uh, evaluate uh, to the same degree efficacy um, as quickly as we were able to do in the older adult population. Um, but there are, you know, immunobridging studies that are anticipated to be able to understand whether or not the immune response in young children is robust and can be as effective as we've seen in the older adult population. Dr. Lee, John Lowerman and Jason Gale did a terrific summary a day ago on the global set of small shocks with big effect, where they really damage people, et cetera. For our audience on radio and TV now, how would you describe the risk of shock and what we need to look for in the minutes following a vaccine? Oh, regarding anaphylaxis, you know, all of our vaccination clinics have protocols in place to monitor everybody for 15 minutes, so everyone should anticipate that after a vaccine, um, but 30 minutes for those who have a prior history of a severe allergic reaction. Um, and uh, individuals who, for example, carry an EpiPen, you know, are... Uh, are number one, we do screening before they come to make sure that they are eligible and can receive the vaccine safely. Um, there are still individuals who we want to make sure we provide access to vaccine because there are many people with food allergies or environmental allergies. And so um, we will continue to monitor those individuals more closely per our protocols and all clinics are prepared uh, or asked to be prepared, any vaccination clinic providing COVID vaccines, to be able to manage, um, uh, monitor, manage, uh, and then effectively uh, be able to get those individuals to care as quickly as possible. It is a challenge mm -hmm. um, with this particular vaccine. Grace Lee, thank you so much. Dr. Lee with Stanford, of course, here, their children's hospital on the path forward uh, with the vaccination. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.